Hi, I'm Sasha Podzorov. And I'm James Bowen. Thanks for tuning in to On the Overlap, a weekly world football show live at 6 p.m. Eastern every Monday, exclusively on the Locker Room app. On this episode, we talked about Virgil van Dijk's ACL tear, as well as the upcoming Champions League fixtures and the unique Classico coming up next week. Make sure to check out the Locker Room app at Locker Room app on Twitter for more information on how to sign up for the beta and follow us on our Twitters as well at Sasha underscore Podzorov and at James Bowen Media. Hey, Drake. Welcome. Welcome. So <laughs> we're going to be doing this more radio show style this time. It's on the overlap. I'm Sasha Podzorov alongside my good friend James Bowen. Say hello. How's it going, guys? Excited to be here. Right. So it's been a very, very, very busy week and weekend. Uh, on the world football side of things. We're going to be talking about La Liga. We're going to be talking about the Premier League. We're going to be talking about VAR. We're going to be talking about the UCL preview as well. And it's going to be a really, really great episode. We have a lot of topics to touch on and a lot of information that I researched to touch on as well. But first things first, one of the most important topics of the weekend was Virgil van Dyke, the Ballon d'Or runner-up from last year, he went down in a scary collision with Jordan Pickford, and uh, reports are that he tore his ACL, and he's going to be undergoing surgery very soon on that. Uh, Virgil van Dyke posted on his social medias yesterday, quote, This afternoon I met with a leading consultant to start the process of planning the finer details of my rehabilitation following the incident yesterday. I'm now fully focused on my recovery and will do everything I can to be back as quickly as possible. And he said, in football, as in life, I believe everything happens for a reason. And it's important to try and keep level-headed whether going through the highs or the lows. With the support of my wife, kids, family, and everyone at Liverpool, I'm ready for the challenge ahead. Now, that's pretty strong words from anyone who just suffered a major knee injury, and especially for someone at the top of his game. And James, I know you've been a big uh, researcher and you've, you've been really involved with ACL injuries and knee injuries in general. So let's hear your thoughts on that, James. Well, first of all, in a defender who's constantly putting himself in the line of fire and taking blocking shots and being overall physical, it's something that's going to be very difficult for him to recover from. Not to mention the way it happened. Like, this should have never happened on a football pitch. But under those circumstances, you know, the, in my opinion, the best defender in the world, six foot four beast, that is Virgil van Dijk, finds himself trapped under... Jordan Pixford's whole body weight. And the thing is, he's a great athlete in his athletic prime, not to mention as a defender, he's going to get better over time. But will this make him regress from his quick, sorry, his his career's growth? Like he went from playing in Celtic to Southampton to Liverpool, winning the Champions League, winning the Premier League, winning the Club World Cup, and potentially leading his country to the Euros next year, which were obviously postponed from this year. Could we see him reach these levels again? I don't really know. Not to mention his sprint speed and his physicality are going to be affected for years to come. But one thing I like about Virgil van Dijk is that he's a mentally calm individual and defender. And so this is not the kind of thing that'll make him doubt himself or that he won't go into tackles next year as hard as he used to. He, he's going to probably bounce back stronger from this. It's just when and if he'll ever be able to reach the heights that he had previously done. And so for I mean, me, having done ACL research in the past, it's usually the lighter players affected by this, like Jesse Rodriguez of Real Madrid, or even Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Well, I'd say he's one of the lighter players, but that's because he's an attacker and he has to be more lean for those, you know, for more sprinting up and down the pitch. But it's usually the smaller players that are able to recover better. But even they are never the same. Van Dyke is known as one of the world's best defenders. So he's going to have to recover pretty well. Um, and it's, it's not something that's guaranteed at all. And sorry for switching topics, but, you know, across all sports, the ACL tear is detrimental. If you look at, you know, in basketball with Derrick Rose, who's six foot four, just like Van Dyke, it can be career ending. And that's just something that I fear. But uh, I just am very hopeful that he bounces back. And if all the rehabilitation goes well, then I think it looks likely that he'll be on the top of his game. Unfortunately, maybe by the end of maybe May's time next year, right before. Yeah, the good thing, or I guess there's not really many good things when it comes to injuries like that, but the good thing at least is there's been a lot of improvements made recently in the surgical and rehabilitation processes of torn ACLs, torn ligaments in your knees and legs in general. Um, so I definitely think he can make a comeback. Uh, you know, Van Dyke is, is such a such a great defender, but I do agree with um, 
Drake and Andrew with what you guys are saying in the chat right now, that Van Dyke has been declining a bit. But, you know, I, I, I was talking to James about this earlier um, in the first couple weeks of the Prem season, that he was making a couple foolish mistakes. But even then, like his mistakes, they weren't really that bad. I remember one led to a goal. I, I can't remember what team he was facing. But look, even with those mistakes, Van Dyke is a special player and any team would be really happy to have him in the in their back line. And I just hope that Van Dyke can make it back. And I honestly think he will. Um, to your point about Derek Rose, the thing is, like, he hurt his knees so many times after the first initial ACL injury. And he played on the team where Tom Thibodeau pushed him day in, day out, playing so many minutes a game that it the wear and tear on, on your knees, it really really, really, really hindered his recovery. Uh, in Van Dyke's case, I think Liverpool aren't going to be clamoring to have him back as soon as possible. I think they'd rather have him make a full recovery and then come back at the top of his game rather than rushing him back because they still have comfortable or um, they have re some really good defenders still uh, with Joe Gomez and uh, Joel Matip. But, I mean, staying on the topic of Liverpool and of the Merseyside derby that happened uh, over the weekend, it was like James, it was crazy. You know, a 3-3 draw, it's not something you'd expected if you were telling me last season that Liverpool would draw with Everton 3-3 in their first meeting. But it happened, and the circumstances that it happened in were really unfortunate for Liverpool because VAR, instead of going for them, it was against them this time. And VAR has been such a hot topic lately. And I, I guess... It's due to human error that this happens, but I just, I don't think VAR is used correctly. I was, I remember I was looking at the YouTube comments of the Liverpool Everton match and I saw someone mention something about the comparisons between VAR, um, about VAR between baseball and, and um, in, in football. And unless it's, actually egregious and you can see it with the naked eye I don't you don't overturn major decisions decisions like you did um like they did for the last goal there and I don't know man it's just like I don't know James I like I have no words for it I don't know what they can do to fix it what do you think man well I just personally think like VAR if you look at the dangerous things that can happen in football when you don't have VAR, like Lampard's goal school in 2010, where the ball clearly crosses the line, it's a major point in the game where if England equalizes against Germany, the whole tournament changes for both teams. If you don't have VAR in that kind of circumstance, it can derail a team. But in the Premier League, which is a 38-game season, now I'd hate to be one of those people to say one game won't change anything, but the truth of the matter is, do you remember the... Um, John Stone's clearance against Liverpool last year in the Premier League, which by mm -hmm. two centimeters defined the league, it, uh, one game can truly derail the whole entire season. But you can't just pin it on VAR either because it's so easy for us fans or even, even professional linesmen to say, oh, that's such a bad call. You know? But in the heat of the moment, in the quickness of the play, they have thousands of fans, you know, maybe not in the stadium this year, but back at home yeah. waiting for that decision to be made. And they can't dwell on it. I remember in the Copa America of 2019 when uh, I believe it was Gabriel Jesus. He actually crossed into Firmino to score and make it 2-0 Brazil against Argentina in the semifinals. VAR was looking at whether or not Sergio Aguero was fouled at the other end. It took a whole minute for them to make a decision that it was no penalty to Argentina and that the Brazil goal ensuing from that stood. So with VAR, like, it, it doesn't even boil down to it being like a timely thing. It's whether it's right or not. And I feel like if fans were just a little more patient then VAR would be working fine. I personally think the reason VAR doesn't work is just because the referees always feel pressure to be able to make a spontaneous decision. Whereas before it was like intuition based, like referees couldn't just wait it out, think it out, look at footage. They had yeah. to either say goal or not. And I feel like if you look at historically, why, the things that have happened in 1966, England literally won a World Cup because the referee didn't see the ball cross the line. But because he instinctively felt like it had, he gave Jeff Hurst the goal and England won the World Cup. If you remember this or not. But oh, yeah, I was. Those, yeah, for sure. I remember I was, the 1960s <laughs> World Cups perfectly, just like it was yesterday, James. <laughs> just like it was yesterday. And so uh, 
like human error is definitely a thing, especially in sports, which is such a quick, highly paced game. So I feel like I, I like VAR personally, but I think that fans should just be more patient about it. Um, just let the referee think with a clear head instead of, you know, yelling down his neck. Oh, you know, that's the wrong decision because both sides are going to be mad with his decision regardless. So the referee should just be like, you know what, take a deep breath, look at the footage and then make your decision. I just personally think like they get swayed by looking at the footage. I don't know. Like the more you look at something, the more you get different ideas about it. The reference is probably usually the best way to litigate something. So I feel like for the time being, VAR is good. It can get better though. It's just not going to be something that happens overnight. Yeah, VAR's VAR's good for now. It's definitely not perfect, and there's way too many mistakes going on, and it's just way too many calls that are just just the elbow hair away f- from you know being onside or offside or anything with handballs. Just the way that the rules are changing in football are crazy, and it's just like it's all happening overnight. Uh, the the changes in subs and I don't know. It, I guess, I guess changes do sometime, but I I don't know. Like I I guess the one thing I'm thinking that VAR could be different is they should show the process of how they decide on their calls, right? You know, think about the refs' opinion, what they're thinking through, so we at home as fans of the sport can understand why this is being made, like why the calls are being made. If we're making comparisons to the NBA, like you were earlier in the bubble, um, you could hear the NBA, the NBA officials' decisions on any calls that they were reviewing. You could hear their thought processes, and I think that if you integrated that into the sport of football, it could be, it could be better. It could be better for us as viewers. It could be better for the pundits of the game. So they don't have to spend time debating on why the officials decided this or why this happened. I don't know. Like, like you said, VARS is, it's still pretty new, but there's so much that it could, it could improve on. And it's a great technology. I really like that idea though, because it just brought back a memory. Like as a U.S. men's national team fan during the 2010 world cup, if any of you guys remember in the chat, the USA scored a winning goal against Slovenia in the group stages to equal them with England. But the referee called it off. And when I say for no reason, I mean, look back at the footage. No foul, no offside, no interruption of play, no streak around on the field to interrupt the play. It was literally no reason to cancel the goal. The referee didn't explain it, lost his job afterwards because of it. But we'll never know why the referee called that goal, you know, why he disallowed it. And so, like, Sasha, as you say, we can mic up the refs and be like, I, you know, the refs, like, it's an offside. And everyone in the world says, you know, why on earth would he think that? At least we have clarity. But if even, but if the referee doesn't even uh, clarify what he's thinking in the moment, a lot of thoughts could run through the faces and the minds of the fans, you know, especially in social media where there's so much conspiracy. Oh people God. will think, you know, people will think, oh my God, you know, it's a rigged game. But if the referee just says offside and it can actually scientifically be determined that it wasn't offside, then you can just tell if it's human error. But if the referee doesn't clarify that, then we're all in doubt and we're all just lost in this bubble. You know, no pun intended because you mentioned the NBA. And as a result, you know, we won't make any progress. Plus, certain referees, they have a lot of experience, but they're from the older era. And so now with this new wave of referees, if we can get VAR integrated in their training, this could be something for the future. You know, Mm -hmm. like I remember in La Liga in 2016, there was this, there is a referee called uh, Hernandez Hernandez. And he sent off Sergio Ramos so many times because he litigates a certain play when you lift your both your feet off the ground as severely dangerous. However, other La Liga referees don't even give a yellow for that. It's just all in the mind of the referees. But if they're all consistent in their way of evaluating plays and, you know, calling off sides or what, can, what you can get away with and what you can't get away with, there can be more consistency and fluidity in the way that games are litigated and arbitrated. That's what exactly. I think. And speaking of uh, things that I, you know what? I don't even know what transition I was going to make. I want to talk about Pickford's tackle again because VAR decided that it wasn't a card. And afterwards, after the match, uh, after Van Dyke's injury was confirmed to be an ACL injury, he still didn't get any, any kind of punishment for it. There was no fine. There was, there's no retroactive cards. I don't even know if he can do that, but in that case, 
that tackle was it was so egregious. I don't I don't know what the hell Pickford was thinking. I don't know what the hell Pickford was thinking most of the time whenever he's in that, but especially in that situation, man. It's 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 a dirty play, it's a dirty challenge, and it's I don't know. I, I think it should have been a, a red, personally. I agree. And you can't and no one can argue that the tensions aren't there and that Everton's, in my opinion, best start to a season and if God knows how long. Versus Liverpool's shaky start after they're finally after they finally won the championship, you can't tell me there's no emotion involved in a tackle like that. And yeah. Virginal Deck is obviously a human being, but he's also a huge asset to Liverpool. When they invested those seventy-five million pounds into him, this was a long-term project, which so far, in my opinion, had paid off. But Everton to disrupt the process of process of him being able to give them success and trophies is definitely something that has a little bit of a you know, it's a two-edged sword there. Because if it had been in a random game, you would have been like, why did Klopp play Van Dijk? But this was an important game for Liverpool and Everton. So Van Dijk was an integral part to that. So for Pickford to injure arguably their most important player not and get away with it, to me, doesn't sit well. And I, I most certainly just don't want to see it happen again. Because if it happens, how much bigger of a scale can this happen? And it's the Premier League. All the kids watch it. It's the, yeah. most, it's the richest league in the world. The most, the, the only steps above are Neymar, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Messi getting injured in a certain way like this. And guess what would it, what would it do? It would probably derail the career of one of the football's best players ever. No one wants to see that. And so that's what's happening with Van Dyke right now. I feel like it's definitely a topic of discussion. And if I were Pickford, I don't even know if he's released a statement or not. You can verify that. But it, it's something that most certainly can't happen again. And when I say can't, I mean like the league should ensure that it can't happen again or else serious implications need to happen and maybe a suspension because there is no what if in this scenario van dyke is out for minimum six months yeah. at the very least i mean well, how, it, how much worse could it have gotten i don't know man and it shouldn't ever have to even be in that kind of level of degree of severity you know it, it kind of reminded me of the tackle that happened on andre gomez last season when he went out for a couple months after that like it was it was really nasty. It was a bang bang play. Like like it happens, right? It's a part of the game. But he got the person. I don't remember who tackled him, but whoever did got a red card, got sent off, and for good reason. You won't believe I it. Think... But it was Huming's son. <laughs> it was who? Huming's son broke under the. Oh, leg. it was son. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, objectively speaking, that's what happened. But you know, you can't twist it any other way. He broke his yeah. leg. I don't remember. It, it, that one definitely was not intentional at all, but it happened. Well, I don't think and, Pickford's was intentional either. It just, there's no place for it, really. I, it it sucks. It would have sucked regardless of what happened to you, even if it was like some backup player on, on Liverpool's bench, you know, it would have sucked because that's a, that's a terrible tackle. It's a terrible injury. And it just so happens to be that it, it was for the, the face of, you know, almost, I would say like the face of the Premier League right now. Like everyone knows who Van Dyke is, and and also to address one of the comments in the chat, um, and um, I believe Andrew said that Liverpool are pushing their line very high. Van Dyke found himself in that scenario in the opposing team's penalty box because he's such an attack-minded defender. So I feel like when they say the wrong place at the wrong time, that's that's Van Dyke's bread and butter. Like he didn't really change his play style at all, and he shouldn't have to. It's Pickford who, despite as commanding of his area as he is shouldn't be putting in risk other opposition players. And what if it was his teammate? What if it was literally any other human being? They would have also suffered at in that kind of position. So I feel like it's just way too excessive, his, the, the force and ferocity for which he, uh, he attacks the ball. So it's, I feel like no one should have to change their style of play here. They should just change their approach to how they play. Like Pickford, if he wants to go for the ball like that, he's just got to be mindful that he might just wipe out a player and injure them very severely, like he just did. James, speaking of changing the approach to the way you play, let's move on to talking about Chelsea and how they should really focus on the defensive end a bit more than they are. And when I say a bit, I mean like 100,000% more than they are right now because, holy crap, how do you tie with Southampton? How do you how do you draw 3-3 with Southampton? Like... You you spend you spend so much money. You bring in old Thiago Silva as your only fix for your back line, and you draw with Southampton on the day that Timo Werner and Kai Havertz 
both score their first Premier League goals. I I think that's that's so disappointing. And I was looking through Chelsea news lately, and I saw a, a quote from Timo Werner. I I can't pull it up right now. I I lost where it was at, but it basically said he was frustrated with the uh, with the way things are going. And as Drake just mentioned, I was gonna put all the blame on Frank Lampard. I was really happy with the way that things were going last season. You know, he he took a team of youngsters. He made it to the top four of the Premier League. That's a great finish, right? But now you brought in a bunch of people. It's Chilwell, too, like Andrew just said. You bring in Chilwell. You bring in Mendy. You bring in Thiago Silva. You bring in Kai Havertz. You bring in Ziyech. You bring in uh, Timo Werner. All these names, they're crazy. They're, they're such big names in world football. And you draw with Southampton, right? You barely eke out a draw <laughs> with West Brom. <laughs> This is a team that spent the most money, okay? They spent the most money this transfer window. You're going to you're going to waste Eden Hazard money and you're not going to be able to get results? Are you are you kidding me, man? Like this is just my frustration as a Chelsea fan, but as an objective football watcher and an avid football uh you know, you know what I'm saying, right? As an avid watcher of world football i'm so upset with the way chelsea's backline is performing honestly man i find it kind of funny like i want to t- say two things number one i remember when barcelona fans were saying luis suarez was a flop now if you say that now and they say <laughs> what you know because he was overweight when he came to barcelona had just bit killing in the fifa world cup and wasn't on the <laughs> yeah. And the first classical, they lost 3-1 to on-fire Real Madrid, who went on to go 22 games of a winning streak. They said, sell Suarez, terrible investment. Get, I think back in the day, like, who was the top of the player? Like Griezmann or something, which, you know, ironic now, right? Right. Eventually, they gave Suarez time. They got the greatest attacking line you could dream of, at least in my opinion. All they had to do was wait. And with Chelsea, you know, as I'm staring at my friend's computer right now, it's like a soccer team. It's not like a computer where you put in a piece and boom, it works immediately. you got to let it, with time, adjust. There's a new league, new pace. Luckily, Havertz and Werner, who are a great duo, and we're definitely going to talk about them a little later, they have that language connection, that I guess that cultural connection when they're, when they're playing, when they're communicating, they're training. Yeah. Thiago Silva, Portuguese. Werner and Havertz, German. You know, Ziyech speaks Dutch. There's there's a few things that people don't recognize that may be playing factors here. Also, football in the end, like, I remember Mourinho once said the better team lost when Real Madrid beat Manchester United in the 2013 round of 16 UEFA Champions League. The truth of the matter is, you know, Chelsea just need to find a way to mesh and become a great team. Because for now, they have great players, but they're not necessarily a great team. And it's just going to take time. Only I'm one just gonna, thing I'm gonna, thing that's worthy is Thiago Silva's age. James, I'm just going to interrupt you here and, to, and and come back to what we're talking about in the chat right now, and that's Frank Lampard not being a good tactical defensive coach. I think he's he's great on the offensive side of things, and we see that. We see that with the attacking play that Chelsea bring week in and week out. But I don't know. Something has to change. Either I, I was reading um, an article in The Athletic and it said that defensive-minded assistant coaches aren't always the solution for a bad defensive line. And Oops. while I agree with that, you need to reinvigorate some kind of energy into this team so they can act as a cohesive backline unit and defend the freaking ball. That's like, a fair point. But um, I, I feel like Thiago Silva was bought with dual purpose because, you see, he's getting older and he's not going to last him as much. But he has that ability to mentor young players on what it's like to be a great defender. And but Thiago, not- Thiago Silva hasn't played in the Premier League. Thiago Silva didn't play last game. It was Christensen. I don't know how Lampard still starts Andreas Christensen and pretends he's a good football player. I don't know how he still plays week in and week out in the Premier League, which is regarded as one of the best leagues, if not the best leagues in the whole world. He should he shouldn't be starting. I'm and I'm sorry. Like he, I get, I 
you you could say all you want. I know I couldn't perform like he did, like <laughs> he does. I know I can't. Okay, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he should be on the field at all at Chelsea. I think he should be like he should be throwing the Serie out like all of Chelsea's failed players. I understand um, the frustrations because if you look back at what Chelsea really is and what they mean historically, forget the Antonio Conte 2017 title winning squad, which was amazing. You think about the 95 point 2005 Chelsea, which had uh, ironically Frank Lampard, but that's just the midfield. They had William Gallas, John Terry, Ricardo Carvalho, Petr Cech, just to name a few. Ashley Cole, who was Cristiano Ronaldo's biggest fault and best defender he's ever faced. That's a this team right today is a shadow of what that used to be. So I can understand your level of standard of watching good defending and Chelsea colors decline and be frustrating over the years. But you gotta understand that I guess, you know, even even nowadays, like I was talking to my friend on another podcast, uh, Elliot, on the one that we run, it's called the Football Index. Um, football, fo- sorry, footballing fullbacks are more attacking minded these days, so they prioritize crossing the ball in and getting up the flank than they do actually defending. That's why you don't see many Maicons or Zanettis or even attack, uh, sorry, defensive minded fullbacks like Philip Lahm these days. And so yeah. they get exposed more, and even the best in the world, like. You know, Joshua Kimmich, they get exposed. Trent Alexander-Arnold exposed this season many times for his lack of positioning. Marcelo historically has been very shaky from getting and tracking back. Um, it, it happens. And I feel like Chelsea, if, if, they had, if they had scored more, sorry, they scored three goals and they conceded three goals. Now, I know that's very black and white, but think yep. about it. That's a little bit of progress because a few weeks prior, they lost 3-0 to Crystal Palace. No goal scored, and they weren't even meshing. Uh-huh. So I just feel like, at least on the attacking front, if they can attack, you know how they say attack is the best way to mitigate defense? Like, attack is the best form of defense? Yo, like, we beat, Chelsea beat Palace 4-0. I, I was like, huh? Oh, what are you talking about? Lose, which team did they lose 3-0 to? It was very recent. <sighs> um, Here, you keep talking. I'll chuck for you. Yeah, please. But the point of the matter is, if they can take the pressure off their defenders and just become this attacking threat who you don't want to counterattack you, then they'll get attacked less. But if the opponents are like, Chelsea aren't going to attack us, they're just going to sit they back. Did, they didn't lose 3-0. Three, three, no. It was only Liverpool 2-0. No. Oh. Okay. Point of the matter is Chelsea lost a game very contentedly, if that's even the word. And it was mostly because they weren't attacking enough and the other team didn't take them seriously. You know, would you, for example, would you attack Barcelona knowing that Messi, Suarez, and Neymar are waiting on the counterattack for when you make a mistake? You know, they could have a leaky back line, but if you've got those three to counterattack you, I feel like that's something that definitely plays in the mind of that position. And right now, teams are like, they got Werner, they got Havertz, they got Ziyech, Pulisic, but they're not, any, they're not meshing at all. So to them, they're not even a serious threat. I feel like that, in a way, is a... It's another problem that they have to address. And that's probably something that Lampard is thinking of. He can't address all the areas of the team simultaneously, even though that's what everyone wants and everyone needs. He's got to be able to nail down one area and then another to formulate this type of contending team. Before we move on from Chelsea and before we, you know, reach to the other couple of things we want to talk about in the Premier League, I just want to leave you with this while we're talking about Chelsea. In 2004 and 2005, the team conceded 15 goals. That's the fewest ever in a Premier League season. This season, the Chelsea backline has conceded three to West Brom. They conceded three to Southampton, and they conceded uh, one to one to Brighton. Right? So, look, I don't know. It's something has to change, and something has to change quick for Chelsea. You know, even if if I wasn't a Chelsea fan, if I was just a Premier League fan, and after seeing the cash that Chelsea spent this season, after seeing the aspirations they set for themselves. Something has to change because you can't always rely on outscoring the other team, just purely offensively. Sometimes you have to bear down and play defensively as well. Hold on, before we do move on, do you think what do you think the solution is? Like buying Jan Oblak, or like what would be the thing? No, that- dude, it's it's not even like the goalie. Like Mendy plays well enough. Kappa, Kappa played okay. He made a couple boneheaded mistakes in the last game, but it wasn't all on Kappa. You know, it was, I, I don't think it was either on the, on the fullbacks either. I think it was the center halves that messed up. I don't think Christensen should be playing. I think Zuma messed up. And I think, I don't know. You got to give, you got to put more faith into Tamori. 
Silva, Tiago Silva has to figure something out, or they have to fire Frank Frank Lampard if things don't change course quick. That's just that's just personally what I think should happen. I mean, from a Chelsea fan's perspective, that's fair. Looking on the outside, looking in, I feel like you guys should give him more time. But you know, that, believe it or not, back in the day, they used to say, "Fire Jurgen Klopp." We finished fourth in the league, you know, etc. Now <laughs> you give him. I'm not saying that Frank Lampard is Jurgen Klopp, but what he did last season impressed me from the outside looking in. I feel like you guys should just give him a little bit more time. If it doesn't work out and it ends up being like a David Moyes situation, then you do what you need to do. Listen, I think I think they'll give a bit more time just because Frank is a Chelsea legend, and I I hope for his sake that things get better. But I just I'm sorry, I don't see it happening. I'm not saying I want Frank out, but I'm just saying if Frank is out, I think things will change for the better. Right? Quickly, I just want to talk about Tottenham before we move on from the Premier League. Um, I mentioned this like in the first podcast that we recorded, not not on not on locker room, but like for my own podcast when we recorded. I am a huge supporter of Harry Kane again. You know, I used to think he was quite overrated in the penalty tap and merchant and all that. Um, Harry Kane has thoroughly impressed me with his creative vision this season. I think him and Son have such a great dynamic between the two of them, and they have beautiful link up play. It feels like as if Harry Kane will know where. Son will be at any time of the match and vice versa Son will know where Harry Kane will be and I think it's a very very good beneficial mutually beneficial relationship but how do you concede three goals in the last 15 minutes I don't I, I don't know I look there's been such an influx of goals this whole Premier League season it's crazy and I know it's been talked about a lot but when you see so many goals being scored, it was 3-3 um, Chelsea-Southampton, right? It was 3-3 Tottenham-West Ham. Um, it was 5-2 Leicester won lately. It was 7-2, I think, Villa over, over Liverpool. And it's like, oh, my God. I know it's Tottenham, right? I, I know it's Tottenham. I know that's what you expect. But still... Uh, you think you'd bear down, and e- even if you allow the first two goals, you eke out a win in Gareth Bale's return. Look, but no, you let Lanzini score. And credit to him, because that was a great strike, and he deserved to score that. But if I'm if I'm Jose Mourinho, I am forcing you to defend like it's your last day on the team. A coach can only do so much. Like Manchester United, for example. They had Zlatan Hibernovic, they had Paul Pogba. I believe they still had a healthy Matic. They were still, I think, sixth in the league. And it, it all, a coach can only instill so much. You know how they say, you can only lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink? Yep. Like Tottenham, you can tell that you can have Maldini in his prime coaching your son, who is a professional defender, and if he just doesn't get it, and it just doesn't click in his mind on what to do in that certain moment of pressure, it won't happen. And so I feel like there's got to be some intangible in what makes a Premier League defender so great. They're not, they're not hiding it. It's just something they can't describe. That's why players like John Terry, you know, um, Real Ferdinand, Nemanja Vidic, they don't come along that often. And when they do, we need to cherish them. You know, not trying to reminisce with, the, with Van Dyke's prime, but that's just an example. Like, yes, he was at Southampton and he was at a lesser level, but he grew up to be one of the best defenders in the league. Who knows how? But he just did. And I know for a fact that every defender wants to be just like him and achieve the things that he's done. But what do they have to do to get there? No one really knows. And if Mourinho, one of the recognized in the past for parking the bus and being overly defensive, is conceding three goals, then Sasha, you know, I hate to say it, but you got to give Frank Lampard then a, you know, a freebie here. Because if even he is conceding goals, then it's got to be something with a change of the times. I guess football is more attacking-minded these days. And there's just going to be naturally an influx of goals as a result. I don't know. I, I agree with you to some extent that it has become a lot more offensive. But, dude, I don't know. I, I'm i kind of at a loss for words with the lack of defending that's going on. Um, I was just looking at the results. I think... Tottenham, uh, to Drake's comment in the chat, I think Tottenham was 3-2 um, on November 23rd, 2019. I think that's what you were talking about. 
because the other other Tottenham result with West Ham last season was 2-0. But I think, I think, oh, no, no, never mind. Yeah, I was looking at yesterday's result. Yeah, it was 3-2 last season. What were you saying, James, again? The, the, it's been a lot more attacking and yeah, that's yeah, sign of the change of the times. As a result of it being more attacking, it's harder to find defenders who are truly like authentic and defend organically. And but what I that what I mean by that is like, for example, you know how Sergio Ramos he plays like superhero football where he'll concede a goal and then score one in the last minute to make up for it. Like real defenders don't need to do that. Fabio Cannavaro, for example, in the 2006 World Cup, I don't think he scored a single goal, but he was Italy's best player, won the Ballon d'Or because of it. Because what he was able to do, pretty much hold it down, not on his own because no one can do that, but make a huge statement on the, I guess, the reputation of the Italian football's defense. And the way he defended and the way they defend nowadays is completely different. Whereas today, defenders kind of have to just physically outdo their opponents or read their mind. Back mm-hmm. in the day, defenders were just in the right place. They knew what they were capable of, and they would just outmark a player. Um, yeah. I feel like today... I do remember today, you saying. I do remember you saying that fullbacks are more attacking now, and I definitely agree with that. It's something that's encouraged. It's not like a fullback can be. And I was I was going to make this point. If you have like a Lillian Toram nowadays, I think he'd have to move to center back and he would never survive as a fullback because the times are changing and he just would be, he wouldn't fit any team's liking, right? And I get that. But I feel like as a result, mm-hmm. then fans shouldn't be so upset when their attacking-minded fullback is lacking in defense. Whereas if it was encouraged to be defensive-minded, like... Alessandro Florenzi, who used to play for Roma and now plays for PSG, which is a big factor that's going to play in tomorrow's game, which we'll mention later. He's of a different breed. And I I just wish it was more of a cultural thing where we regressed a little bit and where we had more defensive-minded fullbacks. Maybe if wingers dropped down a little bit more. But then what ends up happening is that people view that as defensive-minded or parking the bus. And so these tacticians, these uh, pioneers of defensive modern football, like Mourinho, they get slated for it. They lose their job. Then they go to a new team, and it just doesn't work because they don't have the right players. So in the end, it's either you have def- you have attacking-minded fullbacks, and you can see it a load of goals, or you have a defensive-minded team, but then the fans are upset that you're not playing beautiful football. So you really can't win as a manager. Yeah. And, you know, if we're going to bring it back to Frank Lampard, which you know, I'm not doing it to upset you, but I feel like he's trying, he's trying to make everyone yeah, happy by having... Like attacking fullbacks, but also having, you know, N'Golo Kante, in my opinion, still one of the greatest defensive midfielders in the world. Um, I believe a lot of people share that opinion as well, don't you think, Sasha? (laughs) I feel like that kind of, those kind of assets in his team are going to naturally make them better defensively, but it's not going to fix them. And also, as the players are aging, like Van Dyke, we said before, and Kante, that natural decline is going to take a toll on the team. And the dependence of Chelsea on N'Golo Kante being able to win the ball back over the years is eventually just going to have to make them change their style of play. So, yeah, I feel like if I was a Chelsea fan, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be stressing. I'd be upset, of course, because, you know, to take the lead three times and then to draw eventually to a team like Southampton would be something that would be worrisome. But it, it happens, even to the best of teams, even to the 100-point Manchester City team. Yeah, and not to downplay Southampton because they're a very good team and Danny Ings is a great striker. But I also am I'm not too concerned. I'm a little worried, but I'm not too concerned. But who should be concerned, now moving on from the Prem to La Liga, are Barcelona and Real Madrid supporters. James, this is your area of expertise, and <laughs> I'm just going to let you have at it. Listen to what people have to say in the chat. and All right, all I can say is that Real Madrid have been really complacent since they won the league. They actually remind me of Liverpool when they won the title, how you expect them to go forward because they had been so hungry and waiting for to win the league that once they got it, they'd be ambitious ambitious to start a dynasty. But this lackadaisical start to the season has actually frustrated me. Maybe from the outside looking into Chelsea's perspective, perspective is the same as you looking at me from the Real Madrid perspective, where it's like they have the talent to win the league. They have the discipline and the organization and the coach, everything they need, but they just don't perform. And, you know, as I used to be told from my dad that matches aren't won on paper, Real Madrid should be beating these teams. And Cadiz were in the third division in 2016, ironically, when Real Madrid got kicked out of the Copa del Rey for a very funny story with Cherishev. You, you guys should read up on it. But anyways, if you told me that Real Madrid lost to Cadiz, 
when they had Cristiano Ronaldo, I'd be even more dumbfounded. But if you told me the La Liga winning Real Madrid that had bounced back from the loss of Cristiano Ronaldo, lost to Cadiz, I, I'm just confused here now because I'm like, are Real Madrid regressing? Am I panicking? <laughs> or is this going to continue happening? Because it isn't the first poor result they get this season. And Barcelona, to that matter, they're even more frustrating because they still have Lionel Messi and they lose to a penalty kick to Hetafe, who, you know, they aren't the Hetafe of a few seasons ago where they're even contending for Champions League and Europa League glory. This is just, you know, not to be condescending, but it's Hetafe. It, it, it's definitely frustrating. And Sasha, leading up to the Clasico, it's, it's a game that, for me, just took a huge major hit. Now, I know that no fans were going to be in the stadium regardless, but the hype yeah. around the match isn't like anything in the years past. Like, you would dream... You want to know something? I back, do. When, back when Cristiano Ronaldo was, you know, at Real Madrid, he would always post all the time, you know, win these tickets to go watch El Clasico in the VIP spot. And all these little kids would come on his Facebook poll, like, please select me, please select that. The hype around it, it was just magical. You felt like it was, not, it was fictitious. That's how much the Clasico felt. The two best players on the two best teams, head-to-head, every season, at least two times. And in 2011, four times in the space of a week, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you don't get that. Nowadays, you're like, Vinicius Jr., Ansu Fati, a very remorseful Lionel Messi, and a Benzema who's not been firing this season, which is actually quite surprising. This, yeah. you know, despite all the great things that he's accomplished in the absence of Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah. it could either work really well and make the game super unpredictable, or we could get what we got last season, which Sasha, if you remember, a nil-nil draw in the new camp. Very disappointing game. It was, it was probably one of the most boring games I've watched in the past year, and, and that's something to say about. Oh, an El Clasico matchup. You, you know what's funny? El Clasico is like a mini World Cup. And what I mean yeah. by that is that during the FIFA World Cup, people pretend to know what soccer is all about. They have a favorite team. They wear the jerseys. But they don't really follow soccer afterwards. And I feel like El Clasico is like that, where they'll watch that one game in the season, and then they won't watch football for the whole entire year. And if El Clasico mm-hmm. fails to live up to the hype, people's perception of soccer in that moment in time is very ugly. Versus, it could be really good. Like, Sasha, if you remember Lionel Messi's 90th minute winner in the 2017 El Clasico, in the 3 2 at the Bernabeu, after mm. that game, everyone was like, wow, Messi's insane. You know, soccer is really awesome. The commentators went wild. This is the best sport in the world. But if yeah. the first classical you ever watch is the one that's coming up, and it could end nil nil, it could be a really, really boring game. People might think soccer's on the decline. You know, there's a reason that, you know, it's, you know, been taking hits in terms of ratings you know all these kind of negative perceptions and connotations could come as a result of that i feel like that's something that the league can't afford to do because they're not just um, appealing to a, a national audience in spain they're appealing to fans all across the world these are the yeah. two most followed teams on social media um bar manchester united who have a reputation in asia and china these are the two top teams that have the most jersey sales and so they've got to live up to that hype they got to make it they got to make all the fans proud and at the very least, you know, make it entertaining because that's why we watch sports. Like Sasha, my, my question to you would be, would you rather watch a 4-4 game in the second division of England or a nil-nil classico? Well, well, I'll give you my answer. I'll let um, Andrew Jones up on this on the on the speaker stage while we're talking about La Liga sure. and while we're talking about Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, to answer your question, I would probably rather watch uh, – the 4-4 game in the championship. I can't lie. The way I'm seeing things when it comes to the El Clasico that's coming up, it, it doesn't have the fanfare around it like it usually does. And that's super sad to see. It just shows that the teams are on the decline and they need some rejuvenation. Because for me, if you're asking, would I rather watch Barcelona Real Madrid? Or if you know I'm looking ahead at the, at the Premier League schedule, or would I rather watch, I don't know, Arsenal Leicester? I feel like Arsenal-Leicester is going to be a good game, and I, I think I could actually see some goals come out of it. So I guess in that case, I'd probably rather watch Arsenal-Leicester than I. And it's sad to say, then I'd rather watch Real Madrid-Barcelona. Andrew, how's it going, man? How are you two gentlemen doing? James, good sir. How, How are you going, Andrew? <laughs> good sir. Yeah, we talked earlier today, at least in the comments, and Sasha, good to hear from you with that NCAA trophy. Right. I appreciate that. Yeah, yes, I see. Yeah, I see that man still. Uh, that's the only profile picture on here with that. So big ups to that. <laughs> um, it's it, it's gonna be hard for 
one of these two teams to win a trophy because this is the worst El Clasico, at least in terms of the buildup, or at least with both Barcelona and Real Madrid at their current state because they're both horrendous. I mean, Barcelona, they were given that lovely gift by Unai Emery being a disaster at the moment um, and got that 4-0 first half against Villarreal in their opening match. But both of these teams are still feeling the scars of how they're nowhere near the elites of Bayern Munich, of PSG, of even Man City, Liverpool, of maybe even Juventus. And now it has to be stated that it's a real chance that Atletico, if they're able to get their act together offensively consistently and adding a very motivated Suarez along with Jao Felix, another year under his belt, and he's seemingly now looking like he wants to be worth that major price tag that they paid for him. Um, they could see Atletico's or Simeonico Madrid, as I called on the Simeone, really win this title for the second time in six in five years. So, yeah. I mean, or six years. So they're really both a mess at the moment. They're transitioning, trying to now go this youth wave, but the youth hasn't been proven on either side. I mean, Ansu Fadi is the only one breaking through, and it's still big acts for him to really carry the team or him to be even the next guy after Messi, who, you know, is is he's gotten in the last two matches how he's already said to himself, how is the Ronald Koeman period going to go? Where is he going to be gone before I'm gone? Because I'm gone at the end of the season. And I think, honestly, whether it's Bartomeu or Font or whoever is running the club, that um, they're going to be really tempted. And this is going to be after the January transfer window. So Bartomeu may say to himself, you know what? I may, even if I could lose this election, um, it makes sense for me to say to myself, we need to get something back for him. Because as the season goes on and the luster over Kuhlman starts to die out and it starts to look like the Coleman of the Everton era, I just see that being a thing where the price is going to get lower and lower in January. No one's going to even come close to even <laughs> spending halfway on Messi's price tag total at all when he's a free agent really this year. And that I think that it could really get ugly for them in terms of not only this season, but then definitely losing Messi on that free come May slash June. So, um, yeah, both of these teams, you know, Real Madrid, Vinicius, Rodri, Rodri, they're not, they're not ready for it. And maybe they shouldn't have got rid of Barrett Bell so soon, but Zidane seemed like he had something against, Garrett Bell getting paid more than he did. So it's a lot of mess on both sides. <laughs> you know, Andrew, I like the fact that you mentioned Suarez or sorry, Athletic Madrid, because he might actually be, you know, I, I know Lewandowski was a free transfer, but this reminisces of that because mm-hmm. he's got this thing in, in Spanish. We call it Garra Charroa, which means this like vibrance, this aggressiveness to one. Yep. You can't teach that. Like, I, I don't remember who said this quote, but he's like, if you don't want to win, I don't want you on my team, no matter how good you are. And Suarez, even if he's fading, even if his finishing is a little off and his pace is off the mark, he's still got that will to win that won't die off until the day he retires. That will bounce off mm-hmm. and transmit into other players, young players like Joel Felix, who they don't know what it's like to have played a World Cup semifinal or finish fourth in a World Cup. They don't know what it's like to win a Copa America. You know, obviously, because he can't because he's Portuguese. But you get what I mean. He's going to be able to teach them so much at the value of $5 million only. And he's still got so much to give. And not only that, he's taken away from Barcelona and added to Atletico Madrid, who mm-hmm. has that, that winning and tangible mentality. Suarez has won the Champions League. Atletico Madrid have never. He's scored against Atletico Madrid, ironically, in the Champions League. Not only will they have that not to worry about, but they'll have, still in my opinion, one of the top 20 strikers in the world. Like, I can't believe he only went for $5 million. That's it, Sasha it, and I discussed this prior. It, it was very disrespectful for Barcelona to even think about that offer. Much mm-hmm. less. Um, and also, they sold it to a league rival. Not They didn't sell him to a last-place team. They sold him to literally the only other team that could stop them, aside from Real Madrid. Yep. Atletico had been knocking on the door. When they did win the league, like you had mentioned... They did so by having the same amount of points as Barcelona and playing out of their world, out of their minds and making the Champions League final. They had a dream season. This year, honestly, I was telling Sasha about this a few weeks ago, where Real Madrid won the league last year with very few points. It was one of the most like 
chill ways to win the league ever. Whereas in years prior, they finished in 2010 with 96 points and didn't win La Liga. Yeah. So to that point, I'm just saying, like, Atletico don't even have to go that hard. They, they have to win this league. There's just no way. These are the two worst Real Madrid and Barcelona's that I've seen in a long time. Um, and, and that's the thing, James. Like, not only did they get rid of Suarez and then get rid of him to Atletico, Bartolomeu and the board didn't really replace him at all. They bought in a Trincao, who's really a special talent, but he's too young to be expected to be even anywhere near. And that's why Martin Brathwaite, is really their only true option at number nine that's experienced because Trent Gall is too young to expect him to do his thing. He was great for Braga the last few seasons, but he still, that's a big accent. He wasn't even probably the really in-demand Portuguese player in the window because Silva went to Wolverhampton. So um, it's a real mess in terms of both of these sides with how they organize. Real Madrid, they only won La Liga over the summer because of how Barcelona declined. And then we saw what happened in the Champions League for them. I mean, pre-COVID, they got played off the park against City at the Bernabeu. Then when it came back with no fans for City, so that was a big advantage that Real Madrid could have benefited from. And Rafael Varane was just a mess. And they just couldn't really muster enough despite Benzema being a threat. But you can imagine... If Ron and Ramos had played the way they have of late, especially Ramos being a little reckless on Saturday, those two against not only Luis Suarez, but Diego Costa, I mean, it will be a tag team slaughter for Atletico at the moment because they will literally throw some somersaults on them and suplexes because Real Madrid at the moment, they're just not, they don't have an identity. And neither really does Barcelona, despite Kuhlman trying to and tap the youngsters and trying to lead like a, a new way. But then Bele's a mess. Griezmann's complaining about his position. And then when he's put in the spot to finish, he finishes terribly over the bar. Um, neither side really has a set identity and a set guy that really makes you say, outside of Benzema Messi, that really strikes fear for like their pedigree compared to Atletico having that with Suarez, still with Diego Costa. And if Jao Felix is continuing to mature and do his thing on his weaker foot as he did this Saturday, then it's going to be a season where both Real Madrid and Barcelona, and this is where La Liga now is paying the price for just focusing primarily on these two teams in the big two because they put everything into them to have their league represented and say that we're the best league in the Premier League. And they didn't allow their teams to really share the TV money. And they just thought that Barcelona and Real Madrid are just going to keep out turning out talent or get the guys. But once Neymar left, once Garrett Bell had his injuries, and once, you know, Eden Hazard has injuries, it's just has been a thing that has shown them that Real Madrid and Barcelona decline and why this Classico, with no fans too, is going to be the one that has the least amount of hype or anticipation for it. All right, James, James, yeah. Andrew, let, oh, let me ask you this before we move on to previewing the Champions League, which match day one starts tomorrow, which is really, really exciting for everyone that's a world football fan. Let me just ask this. Who do you think's in a better position moving forward? Is it Barcelona with their little bit of youngsters and a lot of aging talent? Or is it Real Madrid who still have some world-class players that they haven't been performing super well lately and they have a couple promising players, but they've really been underperforming. Plus their major integral players like Ramos, Varane, they're all aging and they're all getting up there close to retirement. Well, Sasha, to answer your question, it's, it's not like obviously Barcelona are in the worst scenario there. And it's not like Real Madrid can say, Oh, in that, in that case, we're going to win the league every year because Barcelona are not in our path anymore. Real Madrid also have their problems. Sergio Ramos is aging and he's, He's probably having that last-minute, you know, renaissance before he ultimately declines and has no physical presence whatsoever on the field. So, Barcelona, in my opinion, they're probably going to have to spend at least a hundred million this summer, which they don't even have because they didn't recuperate a lot Ooh. of and stuff. And Real Madrid, they bought a lot of young talent. They have Vinicius Junior, Rodrigo, Kubo, Jovic, who's so far not been what they expected, but that's not like they have to abandon that project already. They don't have to. They have Militao. 
who's going to accompany Varane in the future. They have Mendy, mm-hmm. who, uh, Starlet, and the national team. I feel like Real Madrid aren't perfect, but they definitely are in the better scenario there. And also, um, Andrew, to, to add to that point, um, Barcelona are not going to recuperate anything from Messi, in my opinion. He's frustrated with them, and he's willing to leave them for free. <laughs> not as like a... Not, not only because it's convenient for him, and he's going to play the waiting game, but because it would be like a statement to what they did. Mm-hmm. To because, honestly, that friendship was so remarkable, Suarez and Messi. They, you, so whenever you saw them on social media, they, you know, you don't know something? I saw a photo where Suarez would be in the front seat. Sorry, Suarez and Messi would be in the front seat, and their wives would be in the back seats. That's how close they were. Yep. And for you to separate them for five million pounds, that to me was not Barcelona trying to make profit. That was just like a personal statement. Like you said before about how Zidane didn't like Bale. This is like Barcelona hating on Suarez, painting him as, as the scapegoat for a man who had won the Golden Boots in the Messi Ronaldo era, given them so much success, given them mm-hmm. their second treble and first Champions League in four years. And what I'll never understand is that he had stinkers in terrible games, but he did score in that Bayern Munich game. Like, yes, yep. like terribly, but he, he even on his last hurrah, he still did what he gets paid to do, which is score goals. So, if, in my opinion, the bigger loser of the two is Barcelona and that's not just because I'm a Real Madrid fan but they they seem to have no future which and what's funny Andrew is like you mentioned before they're paying the price of it depending on their academy because when they won the World Cup when Spain won the World Cup through Barcelona's you know piggybacking off their success they had Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta um, amongst uh, Pedro, mm-hmm. Puyol, Pique to a certain degree yep. all from the academy those are yep. all expenses paid from their academy amazing beautiful nowadays that's literally it. And Adama Traoré, who's not even playing for them. Those are the only two remarkable talents left from La Masia in Barcelona. It's something that definitely is very depressing to see because La Liga couldn't expect it. And Barcelona, I guess, they just tried to rinse those years way too much. You know, all the money they got from UNICEF and winning the Champions League and winning the league all these mm-hmm. years eventually ran dry. And now they don't know where to go. And so <laughs> that's yeah, man. It is something where it happened to just be when Americans are just breaking into Barcelona that this is the worst that Barcelona has been in a while. Because Sergino just, like, I have to wonder, like, did you love Ronald Koeman so much in Barcelona so much, which he does, that he was blinded towards that and not choosing Bayern Munich over them, which was a benefit to Chris, Chris Richards, who's been outstanding, um, earning his place in the Bayern Munich side because I mean, Barcelona, it's all about Bartolomeu saying to himself, well, Messi and Suarez, like, I bought Dembele. I bought Contillo to replace Neymar. And he's saying to himself that the shock of Neymar being gone, well, I bought the replacements, and then I bought Frankie de Young, so I'm saying that I did my job. But the problem that Bartolomeu didn't realize is that he really needed to replace the midfield. He did not get the replacements for Xavi, Iniesta, and now Busquets that he needed to when he was tempted, when people said he should have got Danny Ceballos, when he should have got Fabian Ruiz, who's at Napoli, when he should have got, uh, when he should have kept Tiago, when Tiago was supposed to be the guy. And instead, along with Pep, they said, no, we're done. And we're going to go to Bayern Munich. And so that was where he messed up. And, you know, even developing Ruggie, uh, uh, Ruggie Puig at the moment, that's still a big ask for him to do that. Sergio Roberto's playing at right back. Maybe he goes back into the midfield, but he hasn't stood out in the midfield where he wouldn't be moving to right back if he didn't do that. So um, it's the thing with C, the C. Destin, Conrad De La Fuente breakthrough in the side um, at this time. It's just incredible irony for those in the United States men national team fan base. But uh, it's something where they're by far the biggest thing because they're not going to get anything likely for Messi. And that's a big blow, despite his age, should not get anything back from him. It's seemingly in the case they will need a miraculous turnabout for that to happen. And Messi's not about that. He's not. He just got to the point where he's been so nice, being such the gentle, diminutive, nice little fellow that he's been, that he's tired of them just thinking that he was going to stay there forever and tolerate this. He doesn't mean playing with toddlers. Like, he's seen Dembele not fulfill his potential. Then he's seeing Griezmann just not doing his thing. And then he's playing and seeing Dets who just got to the side. He's like, how the hell am I going to compete and win Champions League? Like, 
even with Juventus being elderly, at least Cristiano seeing his team have proven youngsters like McKinney get into the side and establish and do things. So it is a thing where not that Real Madrid is left better, but Coleman, he could be fired if he doesn't have a good run of results. And Zidane, he's still going to be beloved by at least the team in there. Anyone not named Garrett Bell, that was the case. And Perez and him have at least this whole good chemistry with each other still. So no matter how bad an ordinary Real Madrid have become, at least you can think that Zidane is going to have his job be safe, especially after winning La Liga last year and just to how he came back to the club to be a manager for a decent bit in the second spell. <laughs> That's true, Sasha. You're right about that, by the way, with Debatit. Well, that is true. They are <laughs> one of the few. They are one of the few winners of the Primera. So, Sasha, why not? <laughs> Listen, honestly, I in football manager, if we're talking about that, I'd rather do that. I'd rather be known as the person who takes that club back to glory than touch mm. Real Madrid or Barcelona's futures and partially and and potentially have my reputation scarred for the rest of my life. So you would rather do a Leeds United for sure than, than Jurgen Klopp's well, yeah. Oh, the better will be Leeds United, Manchester United. You'd rather do a Leeds United and be Marcelo Bielsa than do a um that only gonna show shy right now. Absolutely, a hundred percent, absolutely. Mm, 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 mm. I feel you on that. I feel you. 